Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plan with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, Carmen. Always got fun to do this little till thing with you. This must be about episode 10, I would guess. I haven't done the math. Are we maybe eight now? I don't know. This where is we are. actually week 11. Week of, so I was pretty spot on. This is our 11th Which means episode that Nat's been doing stuff on his own behind our backs, but that's okay. <laughs> that's right. Because, yeah, I think Carmen, you and I have participated in three episodes so far, right? So, <laughs> that's great. So, All right. So uh, Nat's going to lead us off, I think, with a question today. Nat, what do you got for us? Yeah. Okay. So our last episode was on death cafes, right? Right. And I drove down to Des Moines, hung out with a whole bunch of strangers in a deli and talked about death and and sort of as I was walking out of that it just sort of the one question sort of started rolling around in my head and it was I feel like maybe just walking into a deli and talking about death was a little more comforting than maybe walking in to the church down the street and so in trying to reach people who don't want to be reached or in living in a culture. And, and I don't know necessarily know what that is. Maybe it's just like my heathen side being attracted mm. to talking about death. But but I wonder if there's a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of judgment or walking. Because when you step into a church, it's going to be the same as you step into anywhere else. They're going to re- greet you. They're going to be happy that you're there, right? So it's not just that initial meeting. But there's something different about a lot of churches, so your question in that would be related to comfort levels talking about death? Well, I'm just wondering where sort of how as as a church and as members in all this, we can do better at creating a safe place for people to walk into, right? Because not everybody's welcome at church. I see. So this is less about the death conversation and more about that you experienced something pretty profound in the cafe that you're going to walk in with a crazy, difficult, deep, troubling topic, and yet there's a comfort level. And sometimes we could walk into a church and not feel comfortable talking even about the cup of coffee that we're drinking. Exactly. Carmen, any thoughts on this? I think it comes down to places where it is okay to ask questions and have opinions that would diverge from uh, what's sort of understood to be the collective of that group. Mm. So you walked into a deli and you assume that there are pastrami loving people and turkey loving people and the people that just want a sandwich with no meat on it at all. And all of those people are welcome to have their opinions and nobody is going to sort of like condemn what you choose. In the church, there's an expectation that um, there is some common set of foundational understandings and or beliefs. And that's increasingly not true. Uh, I mean, I think we are increasingly discovering that the people sitting next to us in the pews or in front of us or behind us have very different understandings of um, morality in particular. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that that's why you have that sense, because there's some places where We have open conversations. We have a wide diversity of opinion and even tastes. And yet in the church, I mean, I would say that for the most part, not so open to people asking, frankly, the really hard questions. Um, And we should be more open to students in particular uh, asking questions, and we should be prepared to have conversations with them, not simply give them sort of the, the, uh, you know, the right answer to the question. Here's the right answer to the question, and you must accept it. 
versus, hey, let's have a conversation about that and let's dig around in what you're what you're hearing from other people, what you're thinking, um, the evidence at hand, all those kinds of things. Well, I think you bring up some really interesting points in all of that, Carmen. I hadn't actually thought about that direction related to it. I think there's a lot of different things we can sort of till around with this topic. But to what to your point, when I think about what constitutes membership in the church so often, like how do you become a member in a church? If you you go to a church for maybe four or six months or something, and they're like, I want to become a member. Well, in all the churches that I've either pastored in or participated in sort of that membership process, it almost is always defined by what you believe about certain what are seemed, you know, deemed to be important theological topics. And so your view of scripture, your view of sovereignty, your view of the last things, your view of the cross, all of those things, which I think are terribly important to have a belief that is consistent with God's kingdom. But if you actually want to become part of that people, you need to go through the teachings of that people and say, yes, you agree with the teachings of that people. And so if you were to ever step outside and, and the funny thing about it, right? I mean, being part of a church is probably like being a part of a home. I'm sure Carmen in, in the South, I know certainly in, in Minnesota, there are also unwritten rules besides maybe the, the 10 belief statements that the church has. There's also a series of unwritten rules, the things that you have to do and say and all of that. And, and if you break from those rules, if you ask questions that may be inconsistent with a theological belief or a rule, it becomes an unsafe place to do so, or it can, because the very basis by which you were included in membership was that you agreed on the rules, both written and unwritten on a lot of different levels. And so if you're going to actually bring something up outside of that, that diverges, it kind of even threatens your place among the people. I mean, that's some of what I'm hearing in what you're saying, Carmen, is there's sort of a way of life by which we live. And I, don't, I mean, Nat, I don't know. There's a lot of other things we could talk about, including things like hypocrisy, that people are playing games and uh, and don't actually have this active, vigorous life of Jesus manifesting in them, but they're trying to pretend. There's lots of ways we could go. But any quick thoughts, Nat, uh, in terms of your question related to this idea that there's kind of these written and unwritten rules that define us as a people. And if you step outside of them, it can often not feel like a very safe thing to do. Right. Well, so then... Like, it's okay to ask questions, right? Like, is that? I'd hope so. Right. Like, it should be. I would say so. But I would say that um, that's not necessarily people's experience in church. It is not our experience that church is a place that welcomes questions. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point, Carmen, literally just uh, an hour and a half or two hours ago, I started my class this morning, my Christian social ethics class. Uh, just to get the students warmed up. They're coming bleary-eyed, rubbing sleep out of their eyes, the whole thing, and, and nobody really wants to engage at 8 o'clock in the morning. So that's we, because some of them should become interns of Mornings with Carmen, and then they'd be up at 4. That's really and, true. And you your know? class would seem late in the day. That's a really good point. I will try to do some recruiting for Mornings for, for, with Carmen for some um, interns, some, some free labor for you. <laughs> uh, but I started class this morning just saying, okay, um, totally free reign, totally open conversation. Uh, we'll do this every class period where you and groups of two or three identify one question you'd love to ask. It can be completely unrelated to class. It can be about the Bible, theology, life in the church, relationships, sexuality. I don't care. You name it. And here's what I'll say is that that room woke up. It was about 8.02 or whatever it was just after the few minutes when I asked the question. And all of a sudden, all these tired students were incredibly engaged in the conversation because the possibility existed that they could, without fear, ask any question that might be the kind of question they're not able to ask in the church. So I think, like like you are just saying, Carmen, it was really interesting to witness it just a couple of hours ago in my classroom, just the energy of the possibility. And Nat, how are you processing some of that? Oh, that sounds 
exactly like what I want, right? Like if people, everyone has questions, right? So we need to create a space where people can ask questions and then we can sort of walk through that. And like, I feel like that's pretty fundamental. Like we all just, you know, are questioning everything, not everything. Yeah, Carmen. So I taught fifth grade Sunday school, and now I teach uh, so, uh, on a team. We teach seventh and eighth grade Sunday school. <laughs> That's brilliant. Per- periodically, uh, we will just simply do what Peter you're describing, which is have a day where we just say, "Okay, um, there's no plan other than the one that you, as the students, bring today." So we're going to put the questions as you ask them up here on the board. And then we're going to choose two or three to answer because there's no way we'll get through all the questions, but let's go ahead and get them up here. Um, Some of the questions that fifth graders ask uh, are profoundly deep. Hmm. Um, How how do I know that there is a God? Um, How could God be good when there's so much suffering in the world? Um, How do I reconcile a belief in God with what I'm learning in, in science class? Uh, how do I know the Bible isn't just another book? What makes mm. the Bible so special? Um, you know, if God is, if, if God is love, why is there hell? I mean, I, so let me just say that if fifth graders are asking these questions and we're not, we're not entertaining the questions at the fifth grade level. Yeah. I guarantee you that when we start talking about morality and, and relate, uh, you know, choices related to relationships and sexuality, they have stopped listening to our counsel because we didn't answer. We didn't take their questions seriously mm-hmm. in the fifth grade. Yeah. So why would they take our answers seriously in 10th, 11th, 12th, you know, grade, college, whatever? Mm. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think if we don't, we risk a lot of people that get paralyzed in their faith just simply because the questions are so troubling. I mean, and I'm sure you see that with your friends, Nat. People are just terribly paralyzed because some of what Carmen just described doesn't really get addressed that much. Totally. It's way more common than it should be. Yes. So it sounds to me like the invitation here, and, and Carmen, I love that, is is to wonder about what questions people really are asking when they come in the church. But this would be a much bigger topic, having, I think, all of us been involved in life of the church. Um, the questions of the pastors and why they're there are often different than the questions of the parishioners. And, right. uh, and we could have a really good, fun, thought-provoking <laughs> conversation about that. But I think for now, that's a great question, Nat. I think we can leave it there as this part of the opening episode, or opening part of this episode of The Till. I think we decided this was episode 11, if I have my math correct on this. That's uh, point. Yeah, that's right. Good. And uh, this is our time where we start jumping into one of the topics of the day. And I noted with interest, Carmen, this last week when I saw that one of the political candidates on the Democratic side of the ledger of the aisle here, Elizabeth Warren, said that if she was elected as president, one of the first things that she would do would be to invite a transgender high school student to help her pick the edu- the future secretary of education for our country. Now, that's about as much as I saw of that headline. I didn't see a lot of went into her thinking, like, why was she doing this kind of choice? Did you read much about this? Have you seen this, uh, this, this uh, story breaking? So here is uh, where Nat is such an integral part of this team. He, he has the audio to which you are referring. That is brilliant. Nat Becker, producer, let's have the audio. And I said, I'm going to have a secretary of education that this young trans person interviews on my behalf. And only if this person believes that our secretary or secretary of education nominee 
who is committed to creating a welcoming environment, a safe environment, and a full educational curriculum for everyone, will that person actually be advanced to be Secretary of Education? So, pretty pretty roundly applauded. Let's have it, Carmen. What's your reaction here? A couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth Warren promised that half of her cabinet would be women. Um, It was a part of her plan to, uh, in her description, clean up the executive branch um, she was also seeking to, you know, I think politically consolidate the female vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of this conversation grows out of her identifying that the cabinet would be half women, because as soon as you say that, you have to define what. Oh, you have to define what you mean by woman. Yeah, it's really true. This day, these and days. so so she arrived at the place where, oh, well, now I'm going to have to allow other people who, because, you know, I think a man is a man and a woman is a woman by biology, but that's not how the culture, at least some people in the culture, any longer understand these categories. And so even as president, I would not view myself as competent enough to choose a secretary of education who would meet the definitional requirements of a student who does not view their biological gender as their gender. Okay, that is a deference to cultural delusion that we should not accept as a people. Like, we should not accept into leadership somebody who says, I am going to cede my decision-making to people who are who are operationally delusional. Mm. So, I, I, I mean, that's where I land on it. I yeah. mean, obviously, I'm kind of opinionated on this topic. So, <laughs> others. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, Nat, before I jump in, because I think, but I think you said something really important too, Carmen, I want to go back to, but I always am so curious. And again, uh, in about 45 minutes, I'll walk into my sexuality class. And when we talk about these subjects, these are top of the mind things. Students are really wrestling with this particular topic and, and trying to find their way through. And certainly within schools these days, there's at least almost a month given to be safe space mm-hmm. for different forms of sexuality. And so I think even what Elizabeth Warren is leaning into is trying to have an education secretary that continues to create curriculum that creates safe space, simply meaning usually affirming these positions that Carmen was saying that maybe we should think twice about that are quite delusional. But I mean, are there any, have you been processing these questions with friends, with family, anything along these lines? What are you seeing? Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely something that comes up, right? Like it, it's prevalent in all of the media and it's something that does affect us on all of these levels as we look into, you know, um, the whole electoral system, but also it's a complicated, confusing topic. And I don't know that any of us really, at least within my friend groups, really have a solid grasp on this. Mm. Like, it's just hard. Like, I I know what my opinion is, but but that doesn't that doesn't make a conversation very easy. What makes it not easy? Would you say it's it, it's a hard to be it's hard to be countercultural, right? Like that's just difficult. Uh, but we get that. But it's just all right. Can I? Can yes. I give it a shot? Please, yes. So I had a conversation. This this goes back a couple of years now. I had a conversation with a high school student. Um, she happens to be a Christian, mm-hmm. um, but I don't even think that that is particularly relevant to the conversation. Um, her high school, uh, without any uh, conversation with parents, her high school instituted a policy um, whereby uh, 
trans identified people could use the restroom and changing rooms of their choice. Um, she was in the girl's locker room changing for the sport that she participated in. And a person of the other biological sex is changing next to her. Hmm. And she um, grabbed her things and ran out and ran to the, you know, ran to the guidance counselor, you know, shared that this was happening. And the guidance counselor said, what is your problem with that? You know, this is, this is the, you know, this, the, the, why are you reacting this way? So I think that when we talk about why is this hard to talk about, part of the problem is that the other side is not participating in this conversation in a way that respects um, the viewpoint and the concerns that uh, that people who continue to hold to not just a biblical worldview, but a, a, a worldview that is consistent with reality. Um, and so if it's if you can't have the conversation then it gets really hard to talk about. Yeah, I think that's really uh, two of the things that you said, Carmen, that most recent one there, just in terms of the difficulty talking about it, is I find myself in certain environments or around certain dinner tables with people who would probably sympathize with Elizabeth Warren's position and really be uh, affirmative of that. And I find I almost silenced in my voice somehow, like I, I shouldn't even bring anything up at all. And I don't know if that's a spiritual dimension. I don't know what's well, happening. That's because you continue to care what other people think about you. Well, maybe. I mean, no, maybe. I'm just saying like that, yeah. that's, that is the challenge. That is. right there right. is right. the challenge we mm-hmm. face. It, it is. And, and you're in that tension, right? If you don't want to risk the relationship by offending somebody else, but you don't have any voice because that other person so often doesn't give voice then to have the conversation. So what, you kind of are stuck in a rock and a hard place. If you say something, you're probably going to maybe irredeemably fracture the relationship. And if you don't say something, you feel like you're kind of acquiescing and letting the tide just keep sweeping in. So it's a really tricky conversation that I would find myself into uh, for sure. But I think another part that you said, Carmen, that I think we can get into and at least start with the idea of, and then in the second, maybe half of this episode, really start mining it out. But it's that idea of how the shocking becomes normative, maybe just given a generation. And and what I mean by that is I think there's th- this conversation to me feels shocking is too big of a word, but I think for many people, it's a bit shocking to me that here we are in 2020 Address, making something normal that is um, a, a very historically divergent view of sexuality, that people can sort of choose their sexuality based on their perception of themselves. That is a very unique view in human history. Uh, and really, we're living in sort of the first times in human history where people have somehow disconnected uh, or disentangled the idea of gender from their biological sex. So I have a biological sex and historically people would have said your sense of yourself, male or female would be in alignment with that. But now we've created all kinds of space for people to say, well, I don't know if that is an alignment anymore. And not only that, I'm not even sure that gender is a category. I think it just is an idea that we don't have to hold to. So to me, is that is that shocking at all to you, Carmen? I just I, I think like it feels somewhat shocking, at least new in the conversation. But I just wonder when we look back in a minute through the perspective of history, how many other shocking things in sexuality we haven't really dealt with in the church, and then they became normal over time, and they just became sort of our our usual way of life. So there's definitely uh, a normalizing process, and and we as a culture have been moving. Um, pretty rapidly, very rapidly, I would argue, um, 
through the normalization process from understanding that men are men and women are women and a man marries a woman and they together produce a family and are therefore called parents. Um, And as the parents, they raise people who are called children. And that institution of marriage and the family is the normative crucible for society. We have moved very, very quickly um, beyond that to the place where 41% of the children born in this country are born out of wedlock. Um, and marriage itself has been redefined, and parenting has been radically redefined. Um, and so I think that the basic institution or the basic institutions of marriage and the family as the building blocks of the social order, once you remove those building blocks, it is really difficult to build cohesion at a societal level in other institutions. And that's why we're experiencing what we're experiencing, let's say, in the church um, or in the systems of education or in healthcare. Um, I mean, just you think about all of the places where these gender and sexuality conversations emerge, and they're all a byproduct of the fact that we no longer um, understand that men and women are men and women as God describes and defines at creation and in you know, in the opening verses of Genesis and, and Jesus affirms in his affirmation of marriage and and therefore children aren't what scripture describes and the family isn't and, and on and on and on. So I do think that how we got here conversation would be an interesting one because mm. normalization is a process. And so, Peter, maybe in um, the second half of this episode, we can really just sort of maybe walk decade by decade through the how we got here conversation in terms of can I say the devolution of our sexual ethic? Yeah, because it certainly happened in steps. It didn't happen all at once that we got here. But I would suggest the questions of 2020 that are understandable questions also have a history associated with them that they popped up based on previous questions upon previous questions upon previous questions. And I think one of the ways in which we can break some of the paralysis around these confusing and understandably difficult topics is to do some of that history. So, yeah, so second half, what I'll do is I'll just identify one of the topics of the decade and we can kind of react and respond to that and go uh, decade by decade uh, through this really interesting and winding journey of sexuality. We are talking uh, about the idea of the shocking become normative and uh, truly related to the Elizabeth Warren scenario where she wants to invite a transgender high school student to help her choose the next secretary of education should she be elected president. And one of the things that we talked about in the first half was the idea that this seems shocking on so many levels in 2020, but how, Carmen, you referenced the normalization process happens. And this isn't the first time, and especially if we went decade by decade, to see some of the shifting norms in sexuality. It isn't the first time that the shocking became normative. So I'll try to create a few scenarios and pictures, see if you guys can jump in, if we can rewind ourselves in our time machine back to the 1960s. And Carmen, if I was to say some sort of seminal event that happened that, that was raging against uh, government and the Vietnam War and all those sorts of things, there's all kinds of music happening there, all of that. What, what uh, event to, am I referring to? When all those people went up to that farm in New York. Oh, dear. Right? <laughs> So we're talking right? Woodstock here, right? Woodstock. Yeah. Woodstock. Oh. This yes. is the event. Woodstock. So one of the, I think, sort of enduring images of Woodstock is the idea of uh, make love, not war. And if we went back into the 1960s, this is the first time that extramarital sexuality 
began to move from sort of the lurid and the untalked about and the gossiped maybe into sort of the mainstream and an invitation to say, hey, in response uh, with our protest to the Vietnam War, we think that we should make love and not war. And it was being fueled also by a decade that began to do quite a bit of drug experimentation at the time that really, I think, as we all know, lowers inhibition substantially. So you have this kind of toxic stew, as it were, of resistance to the government maybe for some understandable reasons, combined with a whole lot of drug experimentation, and then the the move into this idea, hey, shouldn't we just embrace love as defined by freedom and our sexual choice? I mean, Carmen, you and I weren't alive. I think we were born sometime around in those times. But uh, any reflections from the time of Woodstock? Because if we had been in that time and been a, a traditional nuclear unit, seeing the pictures coming out of Woodstock would have been absolutely shocking, the idea to just go sleep with somebody who isn't your spouse and we're actually going to celebrate that. So I was born in 1968. And so when we talk about being young adults in this period of time, we talk about being college students and the newly married people, we're talking about my parents. Mm -hmm. And so when I asked them about this you know, period of time, particularly my mom, who was a, was a college professor by the time I was born, you know, the, she was then dealing with students who oh. were openly acting as if they didn't have to follow any yeah. of the of the rules. And um, and I would say that for my mom, that pushed her very quickly to want to preserve not only the way that she was raised, but what she understood to be like sort of the stable way, uh, not only to be a family, mm -hmm. but to be a culture. And so I do think that it had a it had a galvanizing influence in terms of those who were already in positions of, uh, of of any kind of institutional leadership because you immediately recognized that this movement could undermine not only you know personal identity and and the family but it could very very quickly undermine every institution in the culture. Mm. Yeah, I think that's well said. And that's part of what we saw happen then if we just sort of fast forward in the 1970s, take the next decade here in this process, is that the decisions and the behaviors of a, of a generation continue to ripple out into the next generation and their impact is felt then in the next generation. And what we saw, uh, Nat, maybe I'll ask you the question. Uh, as we head into the 1970s, let me just rewind a little bit. The year 1900, yeah, what do you think the divorce rate was in the year 1900? Any it's idea? It's be like... Eleven percent. Okay, now six percent, right on the money. Now it was six percent in nineteen hundred, and that figure had been historically stable for generations, decades, even centuries in terms of what the divorce rate is. Any uh, Nat, since I'm, I've got you on the spot here, yeah, 19, mid nineteen seventies. Any idea what the divorce rate skyrocketed to? Um, thirty percent. It was about fifty-seven percent at its peak at that point. And so, when you have this incredible statistical deviation happen, it's sort of this ding, ding, ding Encyclopedia Brown moment of saying, "What happened here?" Because all of a sudden, a norm really shifted and changed. And I would suggest right. that part of what happened is that, as Carmen has rightly described, when you break down an institution, then all sort of previous rules no longer apply. And not only that, people are heading into what are supposed to be lifelong covenant relationships, but now many of them have a very profound sexual past, mm -hmm. having been defined by, hey, we can just kind of make love with who we want to make love with, because that's what we want to celebrate. And that is almost 
entirely antithetical to the idea of a lifelong marriage right. uh, and bringing that into it. And so now we see the divorce rate begin to skyrocket. I mean, Carmen, I was a child of the 70s and and at least some of my very early years. And I remember when divorce started being part of the church experience. And there's some very understandable reasons for divorce, for sure. But in its, in its rise, I didn't experience the church knowing much about what to do with that situation. Do you have any reflections from back then on, on that part of the the sort of changing norms? Well, I, I don't think it was until um, 1980 that we get this concept of no-fault divorce. And mm. so at least prior to that, there's an ongoing conversation in the culture that divorce is not ideal. But by the time that Ronald Reagan comes around, who you know is understood to sort of be the conservative witness and voice, and, and he is an advocate and proponent of no-fault divorce— you know, we have reached a cultural moment where divorce is not only normalized, it's popularized. Mm. And so I think that when when something moves from being, uh, wow, that should never happen to that may happen from time to time to it's fine that it happens to then that it's some sort of good that it happens. That's a mammoth mm. shift. And I think what was not considered where where the main where mainline churches in particular um, totally caved on on this particular issue, did not uphold the sanctity of marriage in any way, did not defend the marriage bed in any way, um, and and are paying the price generationally for having done that. Yeah. Like, right? Yeah. You cannot hold an institution together if you have undermined her foundations. And mm-hmm. the foundation for this is really, you know, the scriptures. What what does God say? What hath God said? How has, you know, the authority of of God over all of these conversations. So I think once we set aside the word of God and imagined that we ourselves could define not only sexuality, but then, but then marriage, you know, it's not just that we divorced one another, we divorced sex from marriage Mm -hmm. and then we divorced marriage from having children. And we have landed today in a very different situation. Mm. Yeah, and that does speak to the process that I think we can make some parallels to the Israelites' experience of Egypt uh, sort of towards the end of this episode. But uh, because you, you lose sense of yourself, you lose sense of your identity, you lose sense of what you were made for, made for. And in all of that, you might feel like you have freedom, but you're actually in bondage at the end of the day. And- Let's keep going through the decades here, Nat. I know as we head into the 1980s, this is really sort of the heartbeat of my childhood. And I think the move that we see building on the 60s and the 1970s is now you have parents that no longer feel like they have the moral authority Mm -hmm. to tell their children what is right and wrong in sexuality because of their own background. They they sort of have given up, at least in their own mind, that sense. And so they start saying things like, hey, just make the choices that you need to make, whatever it is. And I remember my high school dances and my high school music being filled with songs such as Prince, uh, When Doves Cry, and this was some pretty shocking music that happened here. So let's have a little uh, taste of this. And so, Carmen, I don't know about you, but I know I was with my kids in the uh, van uh, not too long ago, and we wanted to listen to the 1980s on the Channel 8, uh, and my wife and I were getting all nostalgic about it. 
And then we realized, I think every song in the 1980s was something about sex. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and the premarital sexuality rate skyrocketed because parents that were walking through their own issues of morality were no longer shepherding their kids. And we started getting to 90% plus for men at very early ages engaging in sexuality and women increasing rates. And the songs like this were celebrating them. Yeah, I mean, we had uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard, Little Corvette, Little Red Corvette, Take Like a Virgin, Yes, Madonna, we could have played that one for sure, yeah. Yeah. Physical by Olivia Newton-John, I mean, uh, Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye, I mean, yeah, it was the 1980s, that's just, uh, there wasn't music that wasn't about sex. Yeah, it, it really was just about every song. And what that did is it actually created an environment where now we're, we're another step removed from sort of the beauty, wonder, and power of sexuality in the marriage covenant, moving to something that was almost becoming a rite of passage. And the questions being generated from that is, when did you have your first time? Are you ready for your first experience? Like, what will you do? What was it like? And it was sort of, it was almost a rite of passage among our youth. It became an initiation mm-hmm. process. And we're talking only 25 years removed, 30 years removed from when it was seen as taboo to head into sex outside of marriage. So this process is going pretty quickly at this point, right? Okay. So I went to the University of Florida and uh, arrived in I graduated high school in 1986. So, you know, the fall of 86, one of the um, sort of introductory things as a freshman when you arrive on the University of Florida campus is that Century Tower is pointed out to you. Mm. The reason it has all of its bricks is because a virgin has never graduated. Mm. Wow. That was the that was sort of the uh, uh, what you understood to be a part of the culture of the University of Florida. Yeah. Now, you know, and so as a you know, as a Christian going there to school, you immediately know, wow, I am in cultural terrain that is completely f- occupied by the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And and then and from that place, I mean, we could we could stay in mind that out a bit. But uh, with a few more decades to go here, I mean, we can fast forward from what you just described then into the 1990s. Um, I don't know if you guys can fill in the the blank here, Matt. Maybe um, maybe you can try to fill in the blank in this one. But this was the topic of the 1990s was, of course, you're going to have sex. Uh, but just make sure as you have sex that your sex is safe. Oh, you you know, so, you know, so this was we, we went from something that, again, was shocking to, of course, you're going to have sex. Let's try to make it safe for you. And some right. of the shocking conversations in the 1990s related to whether or not we should distribute birth control in the schools for the high school students, because we were very scared of AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, Carmen, I remember the controversy around this, which is now, of course, normal by by the 2020. But back then it was scandalous, the idea that we were going to be handing out birth control. Right. And I would say that, you know, for some, that's still scandalous. Yeah. And yet, you know, now um, when we talk about how far we've come and we talk about, you know, the, the contemporary issues, it seems, um, I don't know, does it seem kind of silly that we would be having a conversation about whether or not birth control should be accessible to everyone? Right. And that created a situation where, again, the moral change in 40 years was really the moral change was now make sure you're safe as sex or safe as sex is safe. <laughs> and that began to be the the moral decision. Right. Um, was we changed from the morality of, of the past well, into that. Yeah. And so I think that when we define safe sex, we ought to have we ought to remind ourselves that we're having two different conversations. Exactly. Um, we're talking about the pill. We're talking about preventing pregnancy. But safe sex also came to mean, you know, guarding against sexually transmitted diseases because you were talking right. about a growing number of people who were having lots of different 
uh, sexual partners and lots of different kinds of sexual encounters, not limited to that between, uh, you know, a, a man and a woman. Yeah. And so you also saw the rise at this point in time of the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes a part of the cultural conversation as well. And so safe sex is no longer just a conversation about birth control, although that's a part of it. Um, and certainly the advent of the pill is is a game changer. That yeah. is a game changer yep. in, in, in this conversation across the board. But then also the conversation about sex no longer just being defined as that between a man and a woman. Right. That's a significant part of the conversation at at this point in history as well. It really is. And that's where we see the seedbed of that, where we are today a bit, because you move from that place then into the 2000s. And what we see in 2000 is um, the advent of what might be the most significant game-changing technology that we will ever live through. And and that is the cell phone and the internet. And the the combination Mm -hmm. of those two is that when pornography used to be something that was hidden under your father or your mother's bed that maybe you accessed once or twice a year from this place of experimentation and exploration, which is still devastating to the young heart and the young mind, now began to be accessible through somebody's phone or through their laptop uh, on a 24-7 basis. And the possibilities that then began to be presented for people about what constituted healthy sexuality was all of what you just, I mean, it could be anything at this point, right, Carmen? It was anything from male-female sexuality to now gay sexuality. You could find anything through the internet um, about sexuality that, and it was sort of up to you as to find what pathway would maybe be the one that that would most excite you related to sexuality. Yeah, the, the definition of what constitutes sex changed and certainly the definition of who would be engaged in it and you know, and where we've gone from there is is frankly then to a conversation about identity. Because yeah. once you get to a conversation about transgenderism, right? I mean, which is the next step in this whole process. Right. Once you arrive at that point, you're really no longer talking about sex and sexuality. You are now talking about a a core misunderstanding about who you are as an individual. And so this gets into the conversation about understanding who we are. Um, and then to whom we're going to belong and and how we're going to behave in relationship with one another, which I think, Peter, is um, is is what reaches back to your your allusion earlier to the Israelites in yes, Egypt. It, it really does. It really does. And that's, you know, if we go through the last thing quickly to where we are today, I remember it was about 2012 or 13 that my students began to ask all sorts of questions about same gender sexuality that we hadn't asked before. It was just the next step in the process that you've rightly identified. And even transgenderism and the gender blurring kind of derives from that. But I think where it leaves us, Carmen uh, and Nat, is that whole idea of why did Pharaoh end up like, why did he decide that his blow against the Israelites would come by killing off the firstborn children? Like, why was that the decision? Why didn't he, you know, bring in wild animals to tear them apart or something along those lines? And it was, it was very much a strategic blow from Pharaoh because what he knew is that the male children in Jewish culture were the carriers of the past on behalf of the future. They were the ones who were entrusted with the community sense of identity, the community sense of story, the community sense of God's covenant, the community sense that gave them all of who they were by their way of identity, the ways of shalom that would bring peace, all of that. The firstborn males were the carriers of the future on behalf of God's beautiful past. And Pharaoh knew that if he could kill them all off, 
that then he would actually kill off the future of the Israelites and give it a generation or two. And uh, the Israelites will forget entirely who they are and forget entirely what for what they are meant. They'll be asking all sorts of questions. They won't even realize they're slaves. They'll actually think that they've always been Egyptians, just given uh, a couple of generations, they'll forget. It's the same reason why Nebuchadnezzar, or why, I'm sorry, um, yeah, it was uh, Nebuchadnezzar invited um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to eat the food of Babylon. Right. It was he knew that he could control them if they began to believe that they were actually Babylonians. And, uh, and that's the quote that I've heard that's haunted me to this day from Stephen Lukes, an author. He said, the greatest form of power is when you have someone or something in your power and they no longer know it. And so I would say, and I would suggest, and I don't know what your reaction is to this, Carmen, but all of this conversation on sexuality and these changing norms is we're not asking even the questions anymore about what healthy sexuality is. So many people aren't. And we're, we're sort of in a, in a proverbial generational Egypt where we're pretty close to forgetting altogether what the beauty and wonder of sexuality is supposed to be. Which I would also then argue is the path back. Right. right. So right. for those of us who understand what God has said and how God designed us as image bearers, uh, men and women made in his image and how he has designed us to be in relationship not only with himself, but with one another. And that sex is a good, a given good part of that and part of God's good design. It's not that we've got, you know, this like anti-sex God. I mean, God actually created sex. He just created it to be in a context and, and in the context of a particular relationship and for, frankly, a particular purpose. And so the restoration of, uh, of of a biblical understanding, not only a restored relationship with God and Jesus Christ, like, right, that's the essential starting point here. Yeah. But but from there, a discipleship of Christians that includes a right understanding of who God is and therefore how we should live. And it takes us back to, Nat, I think your question at the beginning of it is, what what are we talking about in the church right now? And if we're not talking about this, maybe we're missing an incredible mm-hmm. opportunity to what Carmen just described as this pathway back to open up the box on these topics. And I know I had a church... Um, want to sit down with me because they had some concerns. The parents had some very understandable concerns on behalf of their kids that were going through what we described earlier in the show, sort of the curriculum in their public school that was teaching them how to be open and affirming and safe Mm -hmm. of all different forms of sexuality. And the parents being concerned by this said to me, can you please come to our church and help us change our schools? And I said, well, um, I don't think that I have the power to be able to do that. But what I would suggest for you as a church is that you can empower and equip your young people. And you might need a minimum of three to five years breaking open these topics that we simply haven't talked about through all of these decades and go back through them and not just understand them, but begin to walk in wholeness and health yourself as a church so that you can shine not just talk about what the beauty of sexuality is, but increasingly through repentance and respiration, restoration, walk in health and wholeness of it, because then you might be empowering your young people to be equipped in the schools where these things are being taught. So having tilled this cultural soil, if we bring this down to a more personal level, yeah. like down like individually down to earth, like what, how do you interact with this and move forward like as a person versus as an institution. Like I like the idea of, you know, this, you're three to five years talking, trying to equip people, but right. like, what do you do as an individual? Carmen, we've got a minute and a half left. What do we do as an individual? <laughs> Read the Bible. Mm. I, I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, if you really want to, if you really want to know who you are and, and therefore how you are to be in relationships with other people, 
like and, and yourself. Like, right, you can't have a right relationship with yourself, a right understanding with yourself, let alone a righteous relationship with another person if you don't know who you are as an image bearer of the living God. And that means you have to know him. And the best way that I know to know him is to actually immerse yourself in what he has revealed. And that's in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. You know, the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to open that book, not just as a book, but as the very word of God. Mm. And the question is whether or not we receive it as such. I think that's a, it, so that would be where I would direct uh, yeah. an individual would be back to the Bible. I agree. I think that, I mean, that's where we, uh, where we start in some of my classes about this too. And the Bible can sometimes be a little difficult to understand, but boy, when you start mining into a Carmen, what you just described, I think we, we find that sense of wholeness and peace, that shalom, that target for, for which we're meant for all of this. So good starting place. Mind the scriptures. Good episode, you guys. Episode 11 of the Tills. We're sort of mining this out. Lots more that we could cover, maybe for some future episodes on this as well. But for now, on behalf of producer Nat Becker and Carmen LaBerge, this is Peter Kapsner. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Till. Mm -hmm.